the, the subject of all things new. And this is out of a, a phrase from the book of Revelation, uh, this book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, a very unusual book. Uh, some would say a very weird book. And uh, we've been looking at it and we've been doing it in big chunks. I'm just going to get my notes here. Uh, we've been looking at it in big chunks. And I've, I've told you that the way that you read this book effectively, uh, and by the way, it's the only book in the Bible that God says at the beginning that you'll be blessed if you read it. Uh, kind of interesting. So some of us, we don't read it at all. Some of us, we overread it and we read things into it that aren't necessarily there. Uh, but I would advise you to read the book in big chunks. Uh, and so we're doing it in our church three chapters at a time every time we meet. So basically, the service goes on longer, as most of you know, it goes on until about two o'clock. Uh, and then we're all going to watch a movie together. They've let us use the theater. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So I do it really. I got you there. So, so I, we do it really fast. And I'm, I, I tell you, take your code-breaking glasses off. Uh, this is not a sermon series where you'll pin the tail on the Antichrist. Um, it's not a sermon series where you figure out what 666 means uh, and, and all of that. We're trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the people who originally were the hearers and readers of this book. Persecuted believers in seven churches in the first century in what is now called Turkey. And uh, from a writer who was exiled on the island of Patmos, writing to these churches and giving them an apocalypse, which is an unveiling, a peeling back of the curtain. If we were to peel back this screen and sort of lift the curtain, there's something behind there. And an apocalypse meant that. You peeled back the curtain and you could see what was behind, you see. And Revelation's a bit of a strange book, very unique because it's apocalyptic, but it also has prophecy in it, and it also is a letter. So this is a bizarre hybrid mishmash of three different kinds of literature. It's weird, unique in the sense that John identifies himself. That's not typical in this kind of literature in the ancient world. It's weird in that he says, do not seal up this vision uh, in other words, do not wait for a later day for it to be exposed. He says the time is now that it needs to be understood. So it really is a very unique piece we're reading when we read this book. Uh, but we make all kinds of odd uh, interpretations and ways of reading it. But I say read it in big chunks. Uh, those of you who are really daring and maybe you really, really like reading, uh, read the whole book in one sitting. I bet you it'll take you... 45 minutes if you really get into it, all right? It's, it's, it'll, you'll read it even faster than watching something on Netflix, okay? Uh, so it's the weirdest book of the Bible, but I would argue that when you understand where it's coming from, who it was written to, and why, and you look at our time today, this is, this is the most, there's no more relevant time than this time to read and understand the book of Revelation. We live in this time of tremendous cultural change and upheaval, arguably, easily, the, arguably the most, uh, the, the quickest changes in the history of this, of, of human, human existence are happening now. 
the cultural shifts that are happening, the changes because of the technology that we have are driving forward toward a conclusion. Uh, we live in a time where, where the church, if you look at the broad spectrum of things around the world, this is the most persecuted time in history for the church. Even the last hundred years, this is nothing new, a hundred years of a lot of persecution of people who claim the name of Christ. Maybe not so much in North America, but Christianity is a lot bigger than North America. Tremendous cultural upheaval, tremendous time of persecution worldwide, tremendous changes all over the place. So it's a very, very relevant book when we start thinking of what we live in now compared to what they lived in then. Uh, last week, we looked at Revelation chapters 6 uh, through to 9, and we saw that this is not all that there is. What we see is not all that there is, like the unveiling of a screen, right? And we looked at five groups of people uh, last week and asked the question, which one are you? We meet these people throughout this whole, this whole time that we see in the book of Revelation of, of upheaval and judgment and tribulation where the judgment of God has come upon planet Earth sometime in the foreseeable future. We are not sure when. And we meet these five groups of people. We meet those who are slain because of their testimony in the word of God, those who lose their lives, presumably in this period of tribulation. We meet the servants of our God, the 144,000 sort of mysterious people. We meet those who came out of the great tribulation. We meet the praying saints. And then at the end of chapter 9, we see these people who still, amidst all that's happening and how God is judging the world and how one catastrophe after the other comes and one crazy thing after the other happens, they still refuse to repent. And we ask the question, which group am I in? Uh, which which type of person do I identify with? And today we're going to go through chapters 10 to 12 as this whole period of tribulation continues. Uh, most scholars would say when they use this word tribulation that it's a seven-year period to come. Uh, churches of our brand and stripe and flavor believe in an event that immediately precedes this tribulation, comes before this tribulation. We call this the rapture, and it, and it kind of initiates this whole period. Uh, if you can imagine to yourself all of the believers in Christ vanishing in a very, very rapid moment from the entire globe, uh, this is an event, a supernatural event called the rapture. Um, I could do a whole, a whole sermon on it uh, and why I believe in it and why I think it will happen. Uh, but, but in a broad picture, we believe this event will kind of initiate this seven-year period. Now, there are groups of people who, who are Christians around the world who don't believe in a rapture at all, and that's fine. Uh, it's it's a, a subject of the, the end times that people debate over for sure, uh, as long as we all agree that Christ is coming back, and that's the central thing. Uh, but the, the seven-year period of tribulation is generally thought of as that amount of time, and you can figure that out when you start looking at numbers in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. You do the math, you say, okay, it looks like seven years. Uh, but that's the period that we're in when we look at chapters 10, 11, and 12. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles there to chapter 10. Maybe you have your Bible on your phone, whatever. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all and you have a phone, 
a smartphone or something that's connected to the internet, uh, then you have no excuse because you can get the Bible for free in hundreds of languages with all kinds of neat study tools uh, through the app version. all right? So uh, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 10, uh, and then we start to see more happen in this period of tribulation. And here, what happens here, if you envision it, uh, you know, and John is seeing things, he's seeing imagery, he's seeing things unveiled before his eyes, and these, of course, are images that are quite fantastic. They're loaded with, I mean, they're very graphic. They almost feel like like he's on some type of drug, or it looks like almost like a Hollywood movie or something, and he sees things, and God speaks to him through what he sees, and here he sees an angel come down from heaven. And the angel is robed in a cloud, and and he's got a rainbow above his head, and his face is like the sun. Again, this fantastic imagery, and his legs are like fiery pillars, you know, pillars of fire. And he holds this little scroll in his hand. It's it's uh, it lays open in his hand, little piece of scroll. And he puts one foot on the sea, you know, these legs of fire, boom, and he plants one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, and he shouts with a roar like a lion. If you can just envision that, just, it's incredible imagery. And when he shouts, you hear the seven thunders, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible um, moment that John seems to see here. And uh, he's about to write down what he sees, and the voice says to him, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Curious. And then the angel who's standing, you know, half on the sea and half on the land, he raises his hand, and he swears by God Almighty, he says something we don't know, and he says, in the end, there will be no more delay." Uh, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, and we looked at these trumpets before, uh, about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished that was announced to his servants and his prophets. So something big is going to happen. And then the voice that he heard from heaven, John, speaks to him again. And he says, take the scroll that's in the angel's hand. You take it out of his hand. And so he goes to the angel and he asks him to give him the scroll. And the angel says to him very significant words. Take it and eat it. I don't know if any of you have ever eaten paper before, right? Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. So it's going to be delightful when you taste it, but it's going to give you some major acid reflux, okay, if you can think of it in today's language. And so I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What does this crazy thing have to do with you and me? Well, this little passage at the end of Revelation chapter 10, when this angel is, is giving this scroll to John to eat, if you are back then in that time and you know the Old Testament, you know that you have seen this before. And you have read this before. It's in the book of Ezekiel. 
which is, has a little bit of apocalypse in it as well. And we've seen that John likes to pull things from different prophets. Ezekiel is one of them. And you see almost the exact same thing back in Ezekiel's time when Ezekiel is called to speak to the exiles in Babylon and those left over in Jerusalem who survived the siege 6th century B.C., the Babylonians. And Ezekiel is called to prophesy, to speak to these people, to bring them to a place of repentance. And now you see here in the tribulation period, which is yet to come, that John receives a call from God that is very Ezekiel-like. Why is this important? Because it shows us that repentance is possible even in this time of judgment, of terrible, terrible judgment that will come upon the world. Why is that significant from you, for you and me, especially if, if we are amongst the pre-tribulation lot who believe that we may not even be there during the time? Well, let me tell you why. Because it reveals something to us about the character of God. We often, often in our day, even Christian folk, we often think that God is quite angry, mean, judgmental. We often, some of us still, we often think that when something happens in our lives that's, that's bad, uh, you know, something happens, we get something out of control happens, something that we didn't, we didn't earn it, we didn't do anything to deserve it, and it seems to come out of nowhere like just a flood came into our lives. We oftentimes, we say, well, it's God. It's God that's doing something to me. It's God that's maybe at best he's trying to get my attention. But we oftentimes defer to God as if, as if he's the one who's caused it. Um, and we do that because we have a kind of a mental perception sometimes that if it's bad, it's definitely, it's definitely got attachment to God. Some of us are like that. And maybe others of us, when it's good, well, then it has to have come from God. Um, can I just tell you that life happens, good or bad, and it's not a wise practice to pigeonhole God for everything. He takes a lot of blame. A lot of people accuse God of all kinds of nefarious things, and sometimes life just happens. Sometimes it comes in like a flood. It's got no explanation. It's got no reasoning. You can try and make up a theology. Well, it's God who did it. Well, it's the devil who did it. Well, it's, you know, my, my this and my that. Sometimes it just happens, friends, and sometimes it has no explanation whatsoever. You can't rationalize it. You can't piece it together. You can't find a way to explain it. It just comes in like a flood, and you and I are left to deal with the mess. When we blame God for it, sometimes it can be very unfair to God. Here we have a presentation of God calling a man to prophesy in a time where he is judging the world, a time of judgment that you'll, we will never see again uh, if we live to see it, which I don't believe we will, but if we were, it's a time that would never, ever happen again. And yet even during that time, God is still leaving the door open for people to repent. 
God is still leaving the door. Even these, these people that we saw at the end of Revelation chapter 9 who refused to repent. Even after that, God is still calling John to prophesy. He is still calling this man to preach, this man to say something, to get people's attention that they may repent and that they may turn to Christ. It shows you something about the character of God. He is not willing, Peter said, that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he will try and get our attention until the very, very end, even if we are hard, even if we are obstinate toward him, even if we refuse to repent, he will still keep trying and trying and trying to get our attention. Still calling this man into an Ezekiel-like role to speak to the people and get their attention. God is a God who is filled with grace and he is filled with mercy right till the very bitter end. And the scroll tastes sweet and then turns sour because the message that he's going to have toward an unbelieving world at that point is going to be a message of repentance and that judgment is here and that you need to repent. And this is going to be very, very difficult for people to hear. They won't like anything that John has to say, and they won't like anything that the next two people have to say in Revelation chapter 11. And here we see God raises up two more people, two more of what he calls witnesses. But first we see a rather, a rather interesting moment there, Revelation chapter 11, where John is told to measure the temple of God. Now, this is an important thing because John, uh, and when he's writing, remember in the first, uh, the first part of this series, we talked about, well, is he writing pre-70 or post-70? Because in the year 70, the Romans came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in the city. Uh, and the temple has never since been rebuilt. You just have one little retaining wall of the temple called the Wailing Wall that you can visit today in Jerusalem. But the temple has never since been rebuilt. So the question is, is this thing where John is told to measure, take these strange measurements of the temple, is he writing about a temple that is yet to be destroyed? Or is he writing about some temple in heaven? And there's debate about this. Regardless, it again is similar to what Ezekiel was called to do. Ezekiel is called to take measurements of the temple. And in Ezekiel's case, it's a, it's a temple of God in heaven. So that may be the case here. But we see the chapter is introed by this taking measurements. And he says, do not measure the outer court of the temple area because it has been given over to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. They will trample on the holy city on Jerusalem for 42 months, 42 months in their time, three and a half years. And I will give power, he says, to my two witnesses. Again, you have people who are called to prophesy there for 1260 days. Another number which measures the same amount of time. It's three, uh, three and a half years. And they'll be clothed in sackcloth, suggesting this idea of repentance. And he says, these are those two olive trees that you saw and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. We saw these before. These are who these guys are. 
And you can't, no one will be able to shut these two witnesses up. Uh, they have special powers, you know, that come out of their mouths and they can control the weather and they can make plagues happen. So it's clear that God has, again, not only John, but he has these two witnesses who are going to speak to people and who are going to call them, presumably, to repentance. And when they have finished, verse 7 of chapter 11, their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss, this may be the Antichrist, we'll talk about him in the coming weeks, uh, comes and takes their lives and overpowers these two witnesses and kills them. And their bodies are thrown into the great city, uh, which is called Sodom and Egypt, figuratively. That's a reference to Jerusalem. And for three and a half days, everybody's looking at these two witnesses who have finally been shut down. And they don't give them burial. Uh, they're happy that their lives have been taken. They're actually exchanging gifts sort of a strange kind of Christmas time. Oh, yes, let's exchange gifts with one another because these two prophets have been shut down. Imagine the, the hardness of people's hearts in this time to come. And uh, so for three and a half days, uh, they do this and they gaze upon them and they watch them, but then God brings them back to life, we're told. Verse 11, the breath of life enters them and they stood on their feet and everybody's like, oh, no, uh, they're back. And then they're taken up, they're, they're uh, supernaturally brought up into heaven, verse 12. And then there's this horrific earthquake that takes place in the city of Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 13, a tenth of the city collapses, 7,000 people die in this earthquake, if you can imagine the destruction there. And the survivors, it slips by very quickly, the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There appears to be a repentant lot there in verse 13. The second woe has passed and the third woe is coming soon. Now watch what happens. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet and there are loud voices in heaven. And watch this. The kingdom of the world, this is what they say, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Wasn't it before? And he will reign forever and ever, kind of like what we sang about today. There is a transfer of power that is being talked about here. So we talk about Jesus reigning and ruling and God reigning and ruling, and that's true. I mean, God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign in the affairs of the world. He's sovereign in who he chooses to be leaders of nations. He's sovereign over our lives. He, he's in control. And yet we see this thing of the kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. What it is, is it's a transfer of power where we see, okay, now uh, uh, God is not going to tolerate evil anymore. He's not going to work through his sovereign will and arranging things. He's not going to tolerate. He's not going to put up with. But now his wrath and his justice and his power are going to come. And they're going to come through his Christ, through the Messiah, through Jesus. It's going to be a now it's over. 
now judgment is coming full throttle here. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones, we met them way at the beginning. They fall on their faces and they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign in the sense of now you're not going to put up with it anymore. Now you're not going to say, well, they've chosen to reject me. They've chosen to reject me. I'll let them continue to choose, and I will sovereignly arrange things. No, there is, the time is now finished, and now your power is going to come, and now it's going to rain. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for the judging of the dead and for rewarding your servants the prophets, and your saints who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Interesting statement there. You know, God is the ultimate environmentalist. You know that, eh? He created the earth. When people destroy the earth, he doesn't like it. When God's temple in heaven, or then his temple was opened, again, this seems to be a supernatural temple, and you see the Ark of the Covenant, and you see flashes of thunder and lightning and a great hailstorm. So there's this moment of this transfer of power that's going to happen. And the justice is going to come full throttle now. And you see that Jesus is the avenger, if you will. Uh, you know, the Avenger movie series there, the Marvel movie series. How many billions of dollars has it made? Maybe you know, Joshua. Can you tell me? $20 billion, right? The, these Marvel Avengers. I think 20 movies like later, 18 movies later. You know, you got billions and billions and billions of dollars. A really simple concept. You know, they avenge evil. You know, they, they save the world. Where here you have the ultimate avenger, and this is the Lord Jesus. And he's going to bring about justice. The, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And now it's going to come, and it's going to come full throttle. And we, we miss this today because we often think, well, this is the way that it's going to stay forever. No, it isn't. Uh, God is obligated to judge. He is obligated to correct evil. He's obligated to eliminate it. Otherwise, we've got a major character problem with God. Um, and God has no character problem. He, he will avenge. He will bring about justice. But he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits for people to come to him. He waits uh, with a patience that is almost like an eternal patience. And then you see chapter 12. And I put this, this, uh, this image on the screen, if you go to the next slide, I put this image uh, on Facebook, and a lot of people were interested in it. It's, it's not from Comic-Con, okay? Uh, yes, I did go to Comic-Con last weekend. Any of you know what Comic-Con is? You say, you're a pastor? How can you go there? What's wrong with you? Man, I am a student of culture, of pop culture. And when you've got 60,000 people going to event, an event in your city, it, it might be a good idea to see what they're interested in. And uh, so this, is, this is, looks like something that you would buy at a Comic-Con, you know, merchandise booth. Uh, but I didn't buy it there. I just found it online somewhere. People try to depict the, these images in the book of Revelation. They all do a terrible job in my view. Uh, I think someone needs to CGI this book of Revelation. Who knows, Joshua? Maybe you'll be the guy to do it. 
you could make the movie of the whole book of Revelation with CGI and just do it exactly like it's written. I mean, people would be like, this is the craziest thing we have ever seen. From whose mind did this come? And all you'd have to do is say, well, it's just from the Bible, that's all. Uh, but in any case, it's, it, this is not from Comic-Con, but this is somebody tried to draw uh, Revelation chapter 12 and what you're about to see. And I had people making all kinds of comments on Facebook. I had an old pastor friend, and he said, I want to hear your message about this. And I said, well, you can listen to it online. Uh, but here we have quite the, quite the image that, that's being depicted here. You know, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain and was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Wow, with seven heads, seven-headed dragon. I mean, it's 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads, and his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. What in the world? I mean, this is bizarre. Imagine the first century, and this guy is writing this. It is the craziest imagery. The dragon stood in front of the woman who is about to give birth so that he might devour her child. Wow, it's incredibly graphic, the moment that it was born. And, and she, gave, uh, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is right out of the book of Psalms. It's a reference to the Messiah. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. And there's war in heaven. And Michael and his angels, Michael's an Old Testament uh, uh, angel that's referred to two, three times in the Old Testament. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. I mean, it's right out of a Hollywood movie. Uh, fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of our Christ, for, of his Christ. For the accusers, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night, he's been hurled down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And you see it continues where this dragon is filled with fury and, and wants to pursue this woman. And the woman is protected and, the, and the, he, the dragon spews this river out of his mouth to try and drown the woman. And yet the earth swallows up the river. And then the dragon makes war against those who are aligned with the woman. We're told those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus in the chapter ends. You say, what in the world is this? Why does it, why do I need to hear all this stuff? Like, uh, you know, I could, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. Matt, do you know how relevant this chapter is for your life? Okay, first of all, there are people who are writing today, and they're on the internet today, and they're talking about 
constellations and alignments of planets and planet Nubira and planet X and the end of the world's going to happen when all this stuff aligns. Can I, can I just tell you, folks, that is extreme nonsense. Uh, no one, nobody in the first century would have read this and would have said, okay, now we need to look for planet X and Nubira and all this stuff. And this is what God is saying to us. We need to become astronomers and figure out all these things. This is not what they would have understood when they read this. They would have understood something that was a whole lot more relevant to their lives at the time. So it isn't off on some bizarre tangent. I know the imagery is bizarre, but it's talking about something very real and very powerful that affects the lives of you and me today. If you go to the next slide, if you do a little inventory of these two major characters in this, in this thing, the woman most likely is Israel. I know some of you are thinking maybe it's Mary, but Mary didn't run off for three and a half years somewhere. Uh, most likely the woman is Israel. This is the, the, the woman has uh, uh, 12 stars on her head, probably a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this type of imagery in the Old Testament as well. Odds are this woman rep represents Israel in the grand scheme of things. You see the woman has great authority. Um, she she um, has the moon under her feet. Uh, she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. She, she has authority, this woman. And we also see that she's very vulnerable. Those of you who have had, had children before, you know that when you're giving birth, you are very, very vulnerable. You better well trust who, whoever is delivering your baby. Uh, I remember when I was in the delivery room when, when, when my wife gave birth to our daughter, and man, I was watching that dude like a hawk to, to make sure that he knew he was doing. And, you know, I knew a little bit about it. They told us, okay, he should be doing this, this, this. Now, well, I was watching this guy uh, because I wanted him to take care of my wife, you know, who's, who's delivering and of our, our, our daughter. Uh, so, but when you're delivering, you are very, very vulnerable. Uh, so she is in a point in the introduction there where she's in labor, she's vulnerable, but throughout the chapter, you see she's always protected by God. You see, as, she, as she's running, uh, as she, even as it seems like she's going to lose, like that dragon is there ready, prepared. She's running. She, she is protected throughout the whole chapter by God, and her son has to be None other, none other than the Lord Jesus. The, the imagery is too strong to deny. This is stuff right out of the Psalms. It's clear this child, this male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, this is a reference to Jesus. So what you have here is this kind of big, big picture. Uh, the Messiah, Jesus, comes from Israel, and Israel is in a battle with this, this dragon. He, this dragon wants to stop the purposes of God. He wants to stop the advancement of the kingdom. He wants to stop people from coming to Christ. He wants to stop everything. He, and he, he is extremely uh, large. He's intimidating. If you look at the dragon, I mean, uh, John says he's enormous. I mean, you can't think of a more intimidating image. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and all this. I mean, it's just wild. Very intimidating. This dragon has authority as well. 
uh, when you look at him, he's got seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. Uh, uh, and you can see this in the book of Daniel as well. This, this represents some type of uh, kings and so forth in the book of Daniel. But here, there's something deeper that it seems to represent. Uh, this dragon is planned and prepared and ready to take out the male child and devour this male child that is coming from the nation of Israel. And I mean, if you think about the image, there's no way that that child should survive. If you, have a, if you have a dragon in front of you, if you have a big intimidating monster in front of you that is ready to do that and you're in a position where you are prone, like it looks like on paper that they're going to lose uh, we're told that this dragon leads the whole world astray. We're told that he accuses believers day and night, accuses them. But we're also told that the dragon is overcome and the dragon is beaten. And beaten uh, not even specifically by the child who will rule with an iron scepter, but by Michael and his angels uh, who act in the authority of uh, Jesus himself, and then the dragon is furious and attacks believers in vengeance, and that's, this is how the chapter closes. You say, again, that's really, really interesting, but what does this have to do with my personal life? You know, uh, you've described it well, but I don't get how it works. Okay, so here's, here's the reality that you and I face today. Tribulation or no tribulation, I mean, some people even think we live in the tribulation today, but regardless... We do have, friends, an opponent. We do have one who seeks to lead us astray. We do have one who accuses us day and night. We do have one who is extremely intimidating, one who loves to bring fear into our lives, one who, who seems very powerful and seems to have a lot of authority and seems like he's winning more often than he's not. Like we do have one who it feels like we're losing on paper. And the Bible does not shy away from the reality of spiritual warfare in the lives of believers. It does not. It does talk about a personal uh, being and you see many titles used in this chapter, the great, the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, all of these things. These are all different titles to refer to him. But this is a being that is bent on, uh, bent on, on lying to us, on leading us astray, on paralyzing us in our walk with God. Uh, he's an accuser. He accuses day and night. You will never be able to do what you want to do. You will never find an ultimate resolution to this situation. You are not enough. You can't make it. Don't even try. You can't do it. You're not good looking enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not enough. You're not a Christian. You're a failure. You're this. You're that. That kind of paradigm and that sort of mantra that's floating around in your, in your view of yourself. Let me tell you where it comes from. Ultimately, that's not coming from God. That's the accuser. And he, he, you know, I wish it were as simple as this. I wish he would stand there with his seven heads, you know, and the big red dragon, and he says, hi, it's me, I've come to destroy your life. 
Uh, that's not the way he works. He works, and I've taught on this before, he works right up here. And he, right in your, in your head. And, uh, and that's what he tries to do. He tries to lie to you, to lead you astray, to accuse you, uh, to cast fear into your life. And you see here, this is a big, big picture of this ultimate spiritual warfare battle. But you and I, we battle in this every day. We live in it. And look at how the, the victory happens. You see there's this war uh, from verse 7. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels. Presumably these are demons or something. But then you see what happens. Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Why? For the accuser of our brothers has been hurled down. How? They overcame him. Watch. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And that, friends, applies to you and me today. They overcame him by two things. The blood of the lamb. Okay, that's not you. That's a reference to, to Jesus and his death on the cross. Uh, the Bible says that he disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them in Colossians 2. This idea that the atonement of Jesus is, is like the nail is starting to go in the coffin of Satan's grip on humanity. Uh, now we have a way to be saved through the atonement of Jesus. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and what? The word of our testimony. We don't use that word testimony much today unless uh, we're in court or we're watching, you know, uh, what's going on uh, in Washington, D.C. or something. You know, <laughs> then, we, then we start using the word testimony. But this is a word that weaves its way through the Bible. It's a very powerful word. What is your story? What is your stance in your relationship with God? So we used to have church services back in the day, you know, where, where people would give testimonies. We talked about this in the prayer meeting today, you know, popcorn testimonies. And people would stand up and say, I thank God for na 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 And you might have a little bit of music going in the background, you know, someone's playing on the keyboard, someone's got a tambourine going, I thank God for na 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 And everybody says, yes, 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 amen. And somebody gets up in the corner, I thank God for da 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 Everybody says, yes, yes, and the tambourine is playing and the keyboard's going, you know. This was, this was kind of an old way of we called it the popcorn testimony. That's all well and good. But Monday morning, when you're on the job and you can't pay the bills and you got a bad report from a doctor and your kids are out of control and, you know, you got all these problems happening in your life, where's your testimony then? And that's what this is talking about. You need a testimony, you need a stance, you need a story that you carry with you and you say, this is why I believe and this is what I believe and come what may, let it come. Because you will overcome when you have a testimony. But so many of us today, I mean, we don't know if we're coming or going. You've got to take the time, my friends, to say, listen, these are the things that I believe. These are the things that I do not compromise on. And this is why, and this is what God means to my life. And wherever I go, whoever I run into, I bring that testimony with me. And that is how you overcome according to this 
picture. You can overcome now and they will overcome then, but it's by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And you see that this brings uh, great problems to the dragon and he's trying and he's trying and he's trying. He tries to pursue the woman. He can't get her. And so what does he do? He goes after those who are aligned with the woman, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So my question for you as we, as we end today, and maybe the band can come back and uh, do, do uh, just a chorus um, of one of the first two songs, okay? Just pick one and go ahead and we'll finish. We went on a little bit long today. So uh, my question to you today is, are you winning this unseen war? Do you, do you realize uh, that it is taking place in your life? Uh, and I'm not talking about you going home and seeing pictures of dragons. I'm talking about in your own personal life, in your own walk with God, in your own struggles, in your own temptations and trials and, and these things that just come into your life that seem to have no explanation. Are you holding fast to the reality that Jesus died for you? Have you forgotten? And are you holding on to your testimony, your story it's not going to change God. It's no matter what circumstance I face, this is what I believe and this is why.